1 Corinthians 3.18 to 4.7. And before we do read God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on it this morning. Father, we are again thankful for another Lord's Day, another opportunity to come before you and to worship you and to sit as your people and to hear your word. And our God, we would not be like those that come and sit and hear and leave and forget, but we pray that you would write these words indelibly on our souls, on our minds, on our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you would etch them into the very fabric of our being, that we would understand them and that we would believe them and that we would trust in the Savior that is revealed through them. Father, we pray that this would not just be an intellectual exercise, that this would not be just a rote exercise, but that this would be a time when heaven and earth meet and when your voice is heard and when you speak and as you have said that as your voice shook the earth yet once more you have said you will shake not only earth but also the heavens and so our God we pray that you would speak through Jesus. We pray that you would make us to hear loudly the voice of the good shepherd. We pray that we would be convicted of sin, that we would be changed by your your grace and by your gracious spirit and that we would be instructed more and more in the way of righteousness. Father, have mercy on us. Meet with us. Be pleased to exalt your name and your purposes among us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. There the Apostle Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who literally makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there's a story that Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, told about 
um, an occasion he had in his travels in which he met a monk, and he was telling the monk about different things about his life and his ministry, and the monk told him this story. He said, On Palm Sunday, when the Lord entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he was received with shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David, and with the waving of palm branches. That evening, the donkey told his fellow donkeys in the stable, If only you could have seen with what honor I was acclaimed in Jerusalem. They called me Son of David, King of the Jews. I had never before known the name of the donkey who was my father. I was very pleased to find out that he was called David. And the crowd seemed very determined to make me king. They threw their clothes before me on the road in order that I might walk on softness. I suppose they will come tomorrow to enthrone me. I imagine that when a donkey becomes king, he gets plenty of hay and is not made to carry burdens anymore. As the monk finished the story, he looked at Wormbrand significantly and he said, There are quite a few such donkeys. Young pastors are prone to believe that the honor they receive is for them. And I would say congregants. There are many congregants who think that the honor they receive is for them. And that's the very problem that Paul was dealing with in Corinthians. Paul was dealing with a congregation that thought they deserved the honor that only Jesus Christ deserved. He was dealing with a people who had been given great gifts, who had been given much teaching, much learning, much education, and they had taken it, and like that donkey, they had drawn attention and glory to themselves. They had said, look what my own hand has done, and so I like this one, and I like that one. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And so Paul is attacking at the very fabric of the problem in Corinth, a problem of pride and self-exaltation in the hearts of the Corinthians. Now, it's interesting. Paul has dealt in these first, um, these first three chapters, he's dealt with that issue of worldly wisdom versus the wisdom of God and what the Corinthians were doing. Now, it, as it were, Paul goes all the way down to the very depths of the motives in the hearts of the Corinthians. And notice what he says to them in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. At the very heart of the problem in Corinth was that there were people thinking they deserved honor and praise and glory when Jesus, who they were serving, is the only one who deserved honor and praise and glory. And in fact, notice what Paul will tell them in verse 22. He will tell them that even though everything is theirs and God has given them this inheritance that is unbelievable in its scope, they did not belong to themselves. They belonged to Christ and Christ belonged to God. And so there was a hierarchy and they were to see that at the hierarchy, they were down at the bottom. They were not at the top. They wanted to be at the top. They wanted men to love them and revere them. They wanted their church to be praised for eloquence and for rhetoric and for power and for greatness and for the majesty of the prayers that were prayed. And Paul says, you don't get it. It's not about worldly wisdom and eloquence and rhetoric. It's not about you getting honor. It's about Jesus Christ getting honor. And so we're going to see two things this morning in these verses. Paul first sets out the danger of self-deceit in verses 18 down to 23, and then the following verses, he sets out the duty of knowing our calling, the danger of self-deceit and the duty of knowing our calling. We'll notice that Paul very clearly tells them that at the heart of their problem was a self-deception. Notice in verse 18, he says, let no one deceive himself. 
at, at the core of the Corinthians' problems was that they had somehow convinced themselves that they were better than other people, that somehow they were better than other Christians, that they, they were smarter, they were wiser, they did things better. They somehow then deserved something better because they had dug down in their human reason and they had garnered up all of the philosophy and all of the rhetoric and all of the learning that they could and somehow now they were better. And Paul says, you are self-deceived. I used to have a friend struck me very hard as a young Christian when he said this. He said the most, the most worrying thing, the most troubling thing about self-deception is that the person that has deceived themselves doesn't know that they're deceived. That's, that's the dangerous thing about self-deception is that you are purposely deceiving yourself and you don't know that you're deceived. And so we need God the Holy Spirit to come along and to untangle in us those areas where we have self-deception going on. And so God the Holy Spirit inspires a passage like this and says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks you're wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, I'm not going to rehash everything we've said over the last month, month and a half about God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world, but what the Corinthians were doing in seeking to exalt themselves was actually taking a step backwards into the age out of which Jesus had redeemed them. They were actually, by trying to garner worldly wisdom, they were actually taking a step backwards and down from God's wisdom, thinking they were putting themselves up. You can see why Paul says, let no one deceive himself. That's deception. Stepping away from God, stepping away from all that we have in God, going back to the world and the things of the world, is deception. Think of Lot's wife. Lot's wife had a typical redemption out of Sodom. She had a godly husband who we're told is righteous. We probably wouldn't know it unless we were told it, but he was called Righteous Lot. She had, she had a family that God delivered, and yet she deceived herself in thinking what was in Sodom was better than what God had done in redemption for her. That's an illustration of what Paul is saying here about worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom and the matter of self-deception in the heart. I want to read to you a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, Man in his pride and self-deceit spites himself and robs himself of the most wonderful gifts and blessings that it's possible for him to receive. That's the thing the apostle is dealing with here. He says, Don't glory in men. Why not? Because all things are yours. Here are these foolish Corinthians who have got all this, but they don't realize it because they've gone back to the worldly way of thinking. Here they are giving themselves to men when the men are really their possessions. Now, there's an intricate and a very tight order in which Paul's writing these verses. And you'll notice that he moves from verse 18 down to verse 23, what Lloyd-Jones just pointed out, that he is basically saying to them, you are so foolish and so deceived because you're exalting men, and men are not to be exalted. Men are not to be gloried in because men are just men. Men are just men in their weakness, in all of their frailty, in all of their sinfulness. Men, whoever they are, and I want you to think about the men and the women you look up to, the men and the women you admire, they are nothing. They are sinful. They, by nature, are under God's wrath and curse. They are tainted with sin. They are under the same condemnation that all men are under by nature. And so you can see how foolish it is to put trust in men. How foolish it is to trust men as if following this guy or following this person is going to make me better. And Paul says, no, you have exchanged everything for nothing. And notice the argument. It's so beautiful. He, he first tells us how God, in verse 19, catches the wise in their craftiness. He catches the wise. I love that language. He's like a hunter. 
catching some stupid, wounded animals who think they're so wise and smarter than the hunter. God catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. Think about that. Have you ever thought what God thinks? And that's the point of this. What does God think about all the philosophies and all the ideologies and all the books that have been written in the world? What does God think about all the thoughts of men? Because right now, the infinite, almighty God knows all the thoughts of all men perfectly, simultaneously, in connection to everything, and in antithesis to his wisdom. The almighty God right now knows every thought that you have ever had, and every thought that all of us are thinking right now, he knows it, and he has known it through all history and through all eternity, and he knows, Paul says, that the thoughts of men are futile. And that, that in itself, ought to put the brakes on us trying to follow men. That in itself, that alone, either following our own imagination and conjuring up some idea of this is what I think God's like or this is what I believe apart from revelation or following the teachings and the ideologies of others who are not giving you God's word. Remember, we talked about we have the mind of Christ. Remember, Paul said that you have the mind of Christ. Why would you exchange the mind of Christ for the mind of some futile, fallen, hunted man or woman in this world? And so notice that Paul first sets that out. And then Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. And then now he moves to the greater because all things are yours. What Lloyd-Jones says is so true that that even the men that these Corinthians were putting on pedestals were part of their inheritance. Notice what Paul says. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. God has so ordered blessings for his church that you are going to inherit everything. You're going to inherit everything. You get it all. You know, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, aim at earth, get nothing. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. That's what Paul's saying. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Aim at earth, aim at worldly wisdom, aim at the, the wisdom of this fallen age, and you get nothing. Aim at heaven, aim at Christ, aim at glory, and you get everything, and you get earth thrown in. And notice that Paul even says that. He says, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, those are the teachers. They're all for you. They were all given to you to build you up. They all belong to you in that sense. And then he says, or the world. Now, that's, that's significant because what the Corinthians were doing was they were looking at things in the world, trite and insignificant things in the world, and they were valuing them above the things they had in Christ. And Paul's like, are you so foolish? Even the whole world is going to be yours. Why would you settle for some futile fallen, twisted, perverted falsehood or even something that may be right on a human level in worldly wisdom. Why would you settle for that? Now, I've noticed, it's interesting, and this is an aside and a rabbit trail, but I've noticed that people that make knowledge their God and make worldly knowledge their God are threatened by anybody smarter than them. I want you to think about this. Just the futility aspect of this. People that make knowledge their God, they don't like to be in a conversation with somebody teaching them something. They want to be the one telling everybody everything. But when we make Jesus our, our God, when Jesus is our God and Savior, when Jesus is the source of our knowledge, we love anybody that comes to us and teaches us more about him. 
And so Paul is, is saying that same perspective is here, that, look, you're going to get the world thrown in. You get everything. But, now, don't think, don't think that you're little gods yourself because he, he throws in there. Everything may belong to you, but you belong to Christ. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. I love this. Um, Paul essentially makes a beeline to Jesus. Every problem, I said this, I think, in the first sermon, every problem in this, in this book, Paul is going to make a beeline to the cross and to Christ crucified and to what we have in him. Rabbi Duncan, an old Scottish Presbyterian missionary to Israel, said, The Apostle Paul, whatever the subject of which he treats, always finds his way to the cross, easily to the cross, to Christ crucified. He says, Is the problem glorying in men? Well, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is it a boasting in human wisdom? We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is it fornication? The body is for the Lord. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So of all the Corinthian vanity and schismatic tendency and man idolatry. So likewise of the Galatian Judaizing. Remember, we studied Galatia. Galatians. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you're circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Circumcision or Christ, not circumcision and Christ. Now, the point that Duncan's making is that Christ is so all-sufficient that you either get everything in him because you belong to him, or you get nothing that you run after in the futility of your efforts in this world. You either get everything in Jesus Christ, the world, Life, death, things present, things to come, everything is yours because you are Christ or you get nothing. Now, I want to say as an uh, important point here, there are some men that are um, squeamish about this passage, uh, verse 23, where it says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is not teaching that Jesus is in every way subordinate to God the Father in the divine nature. It's not teaching that. In the divine nature, the Son of God is equal in every way with God the Father. He is God. He is God in every way that God is God. He was in the form of God, Paul says in Philippians 2. He is God blessed forever over all in Romans 9.5. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, John says in John 1. So when Paul says, here that you are Christ and Christ is God, he's thinking of Christ in the work of redemption as the mediator who humbled himself, who prayed to his father, who submitted himself to his father's will, who did everything necessary to bring us out of this present evil age and into the arms of our heavenly father. And so actually Paul's teaching on subordination of Christ in redemption now becomes the hinge to talk about the duty of knowing our calling. Notice the brilliance of this. He has, in a sense, masterfully told us a biography of Jesus as the servant of the Lord when he said, you are Christ and Christ is God's, that he humbled himself, that he made himself of no reputation, that he took the form of a bondservant, that he was the servant of the Lord, the Ebed Yahweh, he was the suffering servant. And Paul is now going to transition and he's going to say that becomes the paradigm for how we ought to think of ourselves and our own callings. Because the great problem was understanding our calling, understanding what we are as Christians, understanding how we're to be viewed in this world, how we're to think about ourselves. And notice what Paul says in, in 4.1. He says, this is how one should regard us. I think he's reflecting back on verse 23. Christ is God's. We are God's. We are Christ. 
Christ is God, so that means we are servants of Christ, who is a servant of God, and that's how we ought to think. And so Paul says, this is how one ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Sorry, yeah, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. It is so important to know how to think about yourself. I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen someone who had delusions of grandeur, um, who you know really doesn't have that much to offer but thinks so highly of themselves, how sad that is. How sad it is to see somebody thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And how wonderful it is to see a man as great as the Apostle Paul saying, I am merely an under rower. The first word he uses, servants of Christ, comes from, um, comes from the, uh, the, the Second Temple Judaistic world in which the, the rowers on a ship would be down doing the hard work of rowing. And Paul says that's what we are. We are the under rowers of Christ. We are not seen. We are the ones doing the hard work. We are the ones not getting any of the glory. We are the ones pouring ourselves out. Paul will talk about this later. And then he says we're stewards. We're household stewards. We're economists who have been trusted with the riches of a household of the mysteries of God. And that's all we are. And Paul is correcting misinterpretations because some of them were putting Paul in Apollos on pedestals. Paul, after all, was probably the greatest theologian in the history of the New Testament church. I mean, he gave us the majority of our New Testament. And there were some that saw the greatness and the depth of Paul and the greatness of Apollos' ability to explicate what Paul had written. And they were putting them on, on pedestals. And Paul says, listen, let me apply this first to myself and Apollos. We are but servants and we are but stewards of the mysteries of God. That's all we are. And then notice what he says. He says in verse 2, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Now, what Paul is doing is he is, in a sense, preparing to defend his apostleship, his apostolic ministry. And he's, he's not saying, because I'm a servant, because I'm a steward, it doesn't matter what I do. Paul's not saying that. He's saying what that means is that I am to be found faithful. That's all that that means. All that we should be looking for in ourselves and in other ministers is faithfulness. I am appalled at how little we hear about that with the megachurch movement all around us and every blog and every magazine and every audio telling us how to grow your church quicker and faster and bigger and you never hear about faithfulness to the scriptures and to Christ and to the shepherding ministry of the people of God. Very rarely. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should settle to be small and insignificant. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that Paul knew that his calling and our calling is a calling to be faithful servant stewards. That's our calling, to be faithful servant stewards of Christ. And that means that we take everything that God has given us about Christ in the word and we are to be faithful in how we minister that to one another and the world around us. And notice what Paul says, and I love this, because now Paul moves into the section in which he talks about judgmentalism and how we're to judge others. Well, how do we know if someone's been faithful? Well, do I get to sit back and say, they're faithful, they're not faithful, they're faithful, they're not faithful, because frankly, that's a temptation for people being faithful to say, well, that person's not faithful, and that person sure isn't doing what they should be doing. And notice what Paul says. Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were judging people. They were saying, that guy is more faithful than Paul because he's more learned and more eloquent. 
And so he's better and Paul's worse. And Paul says, listen, it's, it's nothing for you to judge me. I don't care if you judge me, Paul says. That's not Paul brushing off helpful criticism. That's Paul saying at the end of the day, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, the Lord will judge me. The Lord will judge me. At the end of the day, the only thing that's going to matter is the motives that are deep within the recesses of our hearts. It's the only thing that's going to matter. Notice what Paul says. He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. One of my best friends in the world is a church planner, and he's had a very, very difficult church plan, much, much more difficult than anything I've, I've experienced. And the last couple of weeks, he's been telling me, reflecting on this passage, he said, I've been praying that God will judge me now that God will judge the motives of my heart, that God will reveal what my motives are and if my motives are well-pleasing unto him. Because it's easy for us to judge each other's motives. That's easy. And Paul says that doesn't matter. And it's easy for us even to look within and to be overly critical of ourselves at times. I think when Paul says, I don't even judge myself, he's saying he doesn't become morbidly introspective about all his weaknesses and judge himself to be disqualified. Paul says, the Lord is my judge. And one day, and this is what I want us to listen to very carefully because this sums it up. One day, God is going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Your motives. Motives are everything. If we haven't learned that through our study in Corinthians, then we haven't learned anything. Motives, heart motives, what drives us, everything. And Paul says, one day, like a lamb cut open and laid bare, God is going to take your conscience and he's going to lay it bare on Judgment Day. And all the motives, good and bad, are going to be laid out. And yes, if you're covered in the blood of Jesus, all those bad motives are going to be covered in that blood. They're going to be washed clean in that blood. But at the end of the day, that is all that's going to matter. There is a Judgment Day coming and that judgment has been left up to God, not up to us. And so that helps us even with one another, doesn't it? When we see flaws in each other, when we see weaknesses in each other, we can learn to be patient with each other. There was, after all, a Judas among the disciples, wasn't there? There was a man whose motives were dark and evil and heinous, a man whose motives were to betray the infinitely lovely Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. There was a man whose motives were driven by the love of money and he would give up the Savior for the love of money and yet Jesus allowed him to operate in the inner circle of disciples for three whole years and he didn't pluck him out. And that would be the temptation of many to say, well, look at him, let's get rid of him. And so there's a lesson here that even as we learn as we learn to embrace the wisdom of God in Christ, that we would learn also not to judge the motives, especially of the ministers of Christ who are laboring faithfully as Paul was, because Paul's telling us that one day God is going to give to each one 
and each one will receive his commendation from God. Finally, I want to just point out here that in knowing our positions before God, in knowing our callings before God, notice what Paul says in verse 7. It's a verse that if you've never memorized, I would encourage you to write down, memorize, meditate on, keep it, know it, take it to your grave. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, why is that important in knowing your calling? Because we do have differences. Some of us are smarter. Some of us are stronger. Some of us are better at what we do than others. Some of us are quicker. Some of us are more patient. Some of us are at a different level spiritually than others. And what Paul is saying is that the only reason you are different from everybody else is because God has made you different. Now, I actually marvel that a lot of Christians have a hard time with the doctrine of election because we don't have a hard time with the fact that some guy was born better looking than me or richer than me. Not bothered by that. I mean, I'd like to be better looking and richer, but, but I mean, God deals to each one differently. God didn't make us all look the same and have the same abilities and the same strengths. And so we can be content and we can be humble because we know that anything that we have, we've received from the Lord. Everything that we have, God has given us. And that's, that's the remedy. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you are struggling with in envying other people, in wanting to be better than other people, the remedy is what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you received it, why do you glory as though you did not? That's the remedy. is to remember that God has given. God increases. God puts down. God raises up. God destroys. God makes one to be great and one to be small. And we can be content in our callings. That's the real point of this, is that when we are content with Christ, when we're content with Christ, when we're content with the wisdom and knowledge of Christ, when we're content that God is the one who's going to judge our hearts, and so that's the only, the only one we have to worry about, judging the inner depths of our hearts. And when we know that everything we have comes from Him, we can rest as content, fruitful Christians in this world. You know, in Alaska, it was interesting how nice everybody was. And when I started talking to the people in the church, I said, why is everybody nice up here? They said, well, you know, we have very long, cold winters and everything's difficult. And they said, you know, if the bridge goes out, people are like, well, the bridge is out because everything's difficult. And they they have a healthy assessment of the life that they're living. And so they don't have to get all worked up and they don't have to get um, all driven for their own, uh, their own zeal for something. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be driven for zeal for something. What I'm saying is when we have a healthy assessment of who we are in Christ, we can be content. And we know, we know that we have everything. I mean, what greater thought could drive you forward than that one day you are going to be heir of all things. What greater thought? Think about your life as a Christian, as a wife, as a husband, as children, as students. Think about this thought. What greater thought than that one day you are going to be heir of everything in Jesus? And so he gets glory. We get joy. We can be content. We don't judge. In that sense, we live the life that Christ wants us to live and what he's redeemed us to live for. 
Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning.